Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 693 for the 15th of May, 2020. This week, Apple and Google plan to allow their smartphones to talk to each other. The goal is to help with contact tracing for those who may have been exposed to COVID-19. It seems like a good idea, but it also seems doomed to fail. In short circuits, the creeps among us on the internet have shifted into high gear with links to bad websites and malware-laden downloads. If you've ever wished that you had a backup for your computer's protective applications, I have a suggestion. Microsoft continues to work on the new Chromium-based version of the Edge browser. Now might be a good time to take a look at it. In spare parts, only on the website, the lowly Windows File Explorer has some hidden tricks that can make file management easier. The market for wearable health devices is seeing explosive growth that isn't expected to end anytime soon. And 20 years ago, Kodak was desperately seeking relevance in a world where film was becoming irrelevant. One of the items in spare parts last week described a plan by Apple and Google to allow their respective smartphones to communicate with each other. The goal is to help public health officials locate people who have crossed paths with people who were later found to be COVID-19 positive. Well, it's a good idea, but wow, are there a lot of challenges. Ohio's Department of Health Director, Dr. Amy Acton, explains the underlying problem this way. As states dial back restrictions on which businesses can be open, it's a foregone conclusion that COVID-19 cases will increase. The key now will be to identify cases faster with more testing, which is still lagging badly, and then to perform contact tracing so that people who have been exposed to the virus can be identified and quarantined. Apple and Google say they can use Bluetooth technology and some special apps that users would need to download, install, and activate. It's certain that some smartphone owners, citing privacy and civil liberties concerns, will refuse to use those applications. Even so, partial coverage would seem to be an improvement over no coverage. Contact tracing is a slow process that requires a lot of people, and most states don't have the money to hire the contact tracers they'll need. Apple and Google have already published Bluetooth specifications that are subject to change as the project matures. They have also published specifications for the encryption of data and an application programming interface specification for exposure notification. You'll find links to all of those documents on this week's TechBiter Worldwide. Contact tracing is important because it allows public health authorities to measure and slow the spread of infectious diseases. They do this by gathering information from infected individuals about people they have been in contact with. These people can then be notified by public health authorities to take appropriate safety measures, such as undergoing self-quarantine and getting tested. 
In mid-April, Apple and Google jointly described a plan that would have phones with the app installed broadcast what they call a privacy-preserving identifier using Bluetooth. The identifier is not directly linked to any user information, and it would change several times each hour. Other phones would broadcast their own identifiers and listen for identifiers from other phones. Then, at least once a day, the phone will download a list of beacons that have been verified as belonging to people confirmed as positive for COVID-19 from a public health authority. Each device will check the list of beacons it has recorded against that downloaded list from the server. If there's a match between the beacons stored on the device and the positive diagnosis list, then the user of the phone could be notified and advised on what steps to take next. Note that no personal identification information is exchanged here at any point, so it's really a clever system. Although users who want to participate would need to download the app manually at first, there are plans to add the capability at the operating system level to help ensure broad adoption. Those who want to opt out could still do so, but the proposed technology would work even without the app. When a match is found, the user would be encouraged to download the app. Here's a problem. Bad actors could mimic warnings and lead users to malware sites. This is an issue already, and it's something the developers would need to address. Apple and Google say that only public health authorities will have access to the technology, and apps that they develop would need to meet specific criteria around privacy, security, and data control. Privacy and civil liberties concerns have already been expressed, and the developers have tried to address those concerns. Access to the technology will be granted only to public health authorities who would be able to access a list of beacons provided by the users confirmed to be positive for COVID-19 and who have opted in to sharing them. The system is being designed so that Apple and Google have no access to information related to any specific individual. Apple and Google also state flatly that there will be no monetization based on data from the project by either company, and that both Apple and Google will minimize data used by the system and rely on users' devices to process the information. The proposed system uses more than just location data to determine when somebody might have been exposed to someone with the disease. Public health authorities will be able to establish a threshold for the amount of time that one person was exposed to another. The two users must be within Bluetooth range for at least five minutes to register a match. For contacts that are longer than five minutes, the system will report time in increments of five minutes up to a maximum of 30 minutes. Because proximity is also essential in assessing risk, the system will compare Bluetooth signal strength between the two devices. The closer they are, the higher the signal strength and therefore the greater the risk. So at this point, I'd maybe like to include a personal note. There are people who continue to say it's just like the flu. It isn't. It's more contagious than the flu, a lot more contagious, and the death rate is considerably higher. The incubation period is also a lot longer. That allows people who are infected and contagious to spread the disease for a week before they even suspect that they have it. Being an old guy, I remember polio outbreaks. These began to occur regularly and somewhat sporadically in the early 1900s and continued until the 1950s, when Dr. Jonas Salk developed a vaccine that was injected. Dr. Albert Sabin later developed an oral vaccine. 
polio outbreaks were somewhat localized, and the only way to remain safe then was to avoid contact with others. Swimming pools were closed. Large gatherings were canceled. Sound familiar? A giant clinical test began in 1957. I remember the shot in part because the photographer for my hometown newspaper used the pictures with my eyes closed in horror when I received the injection. It was on the front page. But then, just like that, polio is no longer a worry for children or their parents. Perhaps scientists will find a vaccine that will protect the population from this new coronavirus, but that's unlikely to happen for months if we're extremely lucky, or well more than a year if research proceeds at a somewhat normal pace. So in the meantime, we have to depend on social distancing, masks, and people who are willing to assess risks to themselves and others. It may be that technology can help, and in a way that it doesn't adversely affect civil liberties and privacy, while allowing society to resume some normal activities, even if they're less normal and more new normal. But then, even if there is some data leakage, I wonder if that might not be preferable to death from a nasty virus. Okay, so will it work? After all that build-up, you might have already concluded that I think this will work because it's a great idea. Half of that is correct. It is a great idea. But I also think it's doomed from the outset. First, it works only with Apple and Android smartphones. So that eliminates people who don't have smartphones. Many of the people who don't have smartphones are older or poorer. So the most vulnerable people don't have access to the technology. And some people who do have smartphones won't use the apps because they have fears about privacy. The people who are making the most noise about opening everything right now, regardless of risk, also seem to be the people who are most likely to consider this to be a tracking program. It isn't, of course. The developers have created a system that maintains privacy and does so in a clever way. But that doesn't matter to those who see evil, even when it doesn't exist. The initial responses have not been encouraging. A Washington Post-University of Maryland poll says that 60% of Americans can't or won't use such an application. Nothing can be done to make it possible for those who can't use the system to participate, but those whose initial knee-jerk reaction is to oppose the technology might eventually be persuaded to accept it. Probably not, though. The Washington Post article by Craig Timberg, Drew Harwell, and Alana Safapur note that about 16% of Americans don't have a smartphone. After accounting for those people, and those who have compatible phones, about 41% would be eligible to use the service. Only 17% of those said that they probably would use such an application, 32% said they might, while 20% said they definitely would not use such an application, and 30% said they probably would not. So even if all those who said they definitely or probably would use such an application actually did use it, that would still cover only about 20% of the population, and that's simply not enough for this to have any chance of being successful. So, sadly, it does not look very promising. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. 
It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. short circuits, you've probably already heard my tirade about the dangers of unexpected attachments and emails and messages. You may have heard it several times. You may even be tired of the tirade because the basic steps are so easy. But other threats exist. Probably there has been no time when the threats were more pronounced. Scammers and thieves take advantage of big events, and COVID-19 is probably the largest single event since the advent of ubiquitous computers. Because crooks are clever, it's important to be more on guard than normal right now. You already know not to open attachments or follow links that come from people you don't know. That's the easy part. The correct response to files and links like those is just to delete them without question. But what about an attachment or a URL from somebody you know? Well, the message may not be from somebody you know. Usually there are red flags, the text in the message doesn't sound at all like your friend, or it's somebody who has never before sent you a link or a file, or maybe the email address isn't quite the one your friend normally uses. We know that it's relatively easy for somebody to create a phony Facebook account that uses a friend's photo, and this phony account can send a file or a link to you. So it's probably a good idea to check out any file or link you receive before you try to do anything with it. I've described how to use a PowerShell command to load the text from a website so you can examine the code. That's a fine option if you're able to read and make sense of HTML files that might contain embedded JavaScript. Fortunately, there's an easier way to check a URL. Take care not to click the URL because that will open the computer's default browser and connect to the website. Instead, right-click the URL and choose Copy Hyperlink. I recommend not attempting to select and copy the displayed hyperlink. There are two reasons for that. First, the displayed hyperlink might not show the actual target. And second, during the process of clicking and dragging, it's really easy to left-click the URL and that will take you to a site that you may not want to visit. After copying the URL, open the VirusTotal website. Choose the URL option, paste the link in, and press Enter. You'll see a nearly immediate response from 50 or more security organizations. If all of them report the site is clean, continuing to visit the site can be considered reasonably safe. Not entirely safe. Nothing ever is, but reasonably safe. Files are a little more complicated, but the same website can help. I generally start by saving the file to a computer, even if it's from somebody that I think I know. And then I run the installed antivirus application on the file. If the computer's antivirus application reports the presence of malware, bingo, end of process, delete the file, nothing more to do. But if the installed antivirus application finds nothing, it's still a good idea to get a second opinion because every protective application will miss some files. So head back to VirusTotal, select the File tab, click Choose File, and navigate to the location where you saved the file. 
If the file you're checking is an installer for an application, VirusTotal will probably return a nearly instantaneous result. It calculates several hashes, including an SHA-256 hash for each file, and then compares that value and the name of the file to files that the dozens of systems know about. If they all report undetected, you can reasonably consider the file to be safe. This is a good test for any file you've downloaded, even if it comes from a site you trust. If the file you want to check is a word processor document, a spreadsheet, an image, a PDF document, or a zip file, the process will probably take a little bit longer because it's a file the system hasn't seen previously. After the file is uploaded to VirusTotal, it needs to be passed off to the various malware detection systems. That process is fast, though, and all of the test files I've uploaded have been analyzed in less than a minute. VirusTotal is free to end-users for non-commercial use. Paid services are also available to banks and other businesses. The company works with some 70 anti-malware providers, but does not distribute or promote any of them. Additional information is available about the results. Besides knowing that a given antivirus application has detected a submitted file as malicious, you can also see each provider's detection label that gives insight into the type of threat presented. And most of the URL scanners differentiate between malware sites, phishing sites, and just simply suspicious sites. Some engines will provide additional information stating explicitly whether a given URL belongs to a particular botnet. Have you looked at Edge lately? Microsoft's new Chromium-based version of Edge is making a lot of progress, and it promises to be the first worthwhile browser from Microsoft. I doubt that I'll defect from Firefox to Edge, but it is good to see that Microsoft finally has a better browser. After all, it's only been 25 years since the company released the first version of its certifiably lousy Internet Explorer. As work continues on the browser, the number of extensions available for Edge continues to increase. The numbers still don't approach those for Chrome or Firefox, but nearly 100% of the most popular extensions now have Edge versions. Those who install Edge have three options. You can choose the Canary Channel. In that case, you get the latest daily build and the latest daily bugs. Not recommended for most people. The Dev Channel is the one I selected. It's updated weekly, and most of the serious bugs are gone. And then there's the Beta Channel. It has updates every six weeks, so it's about as close as you'll get to a stable release version during the time that Edge is being developed. It's the right choice for most people who want to give Edge a try and not have to deal with unexpected events. During development, Microsoft is encouraging input from users on the Edge Insider website, You'll find a link to it on the TechFighter Worldwide website. That's where bug fixes are announced and new features are explained. The expansion of extensions for Edge includes popular choices such as LastPass, Adblock Plus, Honey, Evernote, Ghostery, and even a replicated original Pac-Man game. If you visit websites written in languages other than English, you probably already use Google Translate, but now there's an add-on for Edge that has similar functionality. In fact, Edge Translate is better, in some ways, than the Google function. 
Another clever add-on can help users find out who owns a website. That's easy enough without a plug-in by just visiting a Whois service. These are provided by virtually all domain registrars. DNS Lytics is better, though. One catch is that it's not currently available in the Microsoft Store, but you can visit the developer's website, I have a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and download the Chrome version. Once installed, visit a website and click the IP Info icon in the toolbar. You'll find information about the network where the site is hosted, hosting information, a list of associated domains, and a lot of other useful details. This can be really helpful information when you want to learn something more about a website and the person who created it. Every major browser, and most of the minor ones, have lots of extensions that can be installed to give the browser features you wish it had. So whichever browser you use, take a look at the publisher's list of extensions, at least occasionally, and see if there's something you'd like to add. You won't need any extensions or add-ons for spare parts. Just point any browser at the TechBiter Worldwide website, and this week you'll find these articles. The lowly Windows File Explorer has some hidden tricks that can make file management easier. The market for wearable health devices is seeing explosive growth that isn't expected to end anytime soon. And 20 years ago, Kodak was desperately seeking relevance in a world where film was becoming irrelevant. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.